Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writer Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I have in the studio with me Peter Cole and Adina Hoffman. Um, welcome. Welcome to The Living Writers Show. Good morning. It's great to be here. <laughs> <laughs> well, this show is, I should say, uh, pre-taped, so we're actually, um, this. Uh, we are taping this on Thursday, November 8th, and it's in the morning, but um, so we'll be drinking our smart water and hopefully have had the caffeine to get us to that afternoon um, <laughs> sense. Um, and uh, Peter and and Adina are here in Ann Arbor in town, uh, also with Taha Muhammad Ali, uh, who will be reading at uh, Rackham uh, today. But of course, probably when people hear it, it will be in the past. So a little different t- Twilight Zone timing there. Um, just to begin, as usual, I'd like to to start with um, the the biographies, the the short biographies. Um, Peter Cole's most recent collection of poems is what is doubled poems 1981 through 1998. He has published many volumes of translations from medieval and contemporary Hebrew, and has received numerous awards for his work, including the Penn Translation Prize, a TLS Translation Prize, and fellowships from the NEA the NEH, and the Guggenheim Foundation. He lives in Jerusalem, where he co-edits IBIS editions. And also, something we'll talk about a little bit later in the program, uh, Peter Cole was just awarded the MacArthur uh, Genius Grant a couple weeks ago. So that'll be, that's that's new in the news. And Adina Hoffman um, is here today. We're lucky to have Adina here as well. Adina is um, Taha Muhammad Ali's uh, biographer and um, and a prose writer in her own right as well, um, and we'll we'll talk more with Adina about that. Uh, Taha couldn't be here uh, today with us, but he will be reading his poems um, in town, and hopefully you've had a chance to hear those. And, and Peter will read a few of those today as well um, from Taha Muhammad Ali's book. So what? Um, also, uh, and that book was just put out by, uh, published in this year by Copper Canyon Press, or was it 2006? Well, uh, I, sh- I think it was a fall 2006. Yeah. Fall 2006. Okay, <laughs> the time warp continues on the living for, for show. a book of poetry that's new. <laughs> and, yeah, it's a lovely book with a wonderful cover. It's kind of great. The cover. I wish we could beam this to the audience, uh, the <laughs> listeners, because it's a picture of Taha. So it's as if he's here in the studio with us too. Um, the six- well, we, we refer to that as the. Uh, the face that sold 2,000 books, although it's now sold many more than 2,000. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
<laughs> that's wonderful. It's sort of like the ships and the books exactly. and the, yeah, everyone. Absolutely. And we have also um, in the studio today a copy of Peter's book, The Dream of the Poem, just published uh, this year by Princeton Press, uh, so 2007, Hebrew Poetry from Muslim and Christian Spain, 950 to 1492. And that's, um, of course, translated, edited, and introduced by by Peter. So we'll, we'll be talking about um, The Dream of the Poem uh, a little bit later in the program and starting with Taha's um, So What. So welcome both of you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, how, how about telling us how did you both meet Taha as a way to, to kind of kick off things? Well, we, um, Adina and I run a press called Ibis Editions back in Jerusalem uh, with the third editor, Gabriel Levin. And we'd started the press in 1998 and with the idea of publishing what we call the literature of the Levant, um, which is to say literature written on the, from the eastern part of the Mediterranean, and something that would reflect the way in which, uh, in which writers think, the good writers think, that uh, they don't, their thought doesn't stop at political boundaries, uh, and they're very open to cross-fertilization from other cultures, even if those cultures happen to be at war with their own at a, any given time. Um, and so we put out a first round of books, and then right around that time, I was already studying Arabic uh, at, at a level where I could read. And I think it was right around that time that I heard, well, our third editor, Gabriel Levin, had already heard of Taha. He had participated in, um, in several uh, sessions at a Jerusalem cultural center that was designed to bring Jewish, Israeli, and uh, Palestinian writers together. Oh, wonderful. This is, like, it sounds like such a, that your press and these noble ideas. Well, the press was, um, wasn't yet involved when that, when those meetings were taking place. That was probably in the early 90s. Okay. And, um, but Gabi had already encountered Taha's work. Um, a bit of Taha's work had been translated already into Hebrew uh, by U the University of Michigan's own Anton Shamas, a uh, very fine translator and uh, far and away the best translator from uh, Arabic into Hebrew. And so there were at least a few poems that people who didn't read Arabic could get a sense of. And Taha came to these meetings, or came to one of the meetings, I think, and gave a reading, and just talked a little bit to people, and our friend was very impressed, told me about him. And he had tried to translate a few things with a, he didn't speak any Arabic, and he used a French intermediary. It was a kind of very complicated, and didn't really work out. And then at some point, I can't actually remember, in 1996, 98, there was an international poetry festival in Jerusalem, and Taha was one of the featured readers. And as he read, the catalog also contained a few more translations of Anton Shamas in Hebrew with the Arabic beside it, so I could see both. And then I suddenly understood, because Anton's translations are very good, I understood really just how unusual, uh, just how unique in the Arabic uh, literary landscape, Taha is. And then he gave this unbelievable uh, performance. Uh, and I just was hooked and got the sense if our press exists for anything, it exists to bring a voice like that into English. No one had really heard of Taha. Uh, and so I set about uh, with Gabriel Levin and a third partner, Yahya Hijazi, uh, a Palestinian friend, 
uh, making translations uh, of Taha's work. And we brought that out in, I think it was 2000? Yeah, and that was a book called Nevermind. Um, and it's a book um, that I think, you know, obviously we love Taha's work and we knew we had a wonderful book, but I don't think we actually understood just how wide the appeal of his work would be um, in the English-speaking world. Um, and it's a little bit mysterious. We don't entirely know what happened. Um, but this book caught on in a way... For a small press, you know, we, we're a nonprofit organization. We do not advertise. We work as volunteers. It's completely anti-profit. <laughs> um, and it's not <laughs> as if we've made a profit on Taha, but the book sold phenomenally well. And, well it took a while. Um, what was the first yeah. print run for the book? Um, the first print run was tiny because was 500 we, we couldn't books, afford to print very much. 500 books. And because we have no advertising money, um, it takes. By then, people had already in the let's say poetry circles in America, they were beginning to hear about our press. The books look nice. Uh, the the quality of the translations are always very high. And, and his was the first book, Peter, no, no. just to make sure. No, the no, first no, the round first. was 1998. We did about seven books in 1998, and the second round was three books in, in 2000. 2000, and those were three very major, uh, two other, two major figures. Uh, a man named Chaim Nachman Bialik, who was the first modern Hebrew poet writing at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, a, a real giant in Hebrew, and the uh, medieval uh, Muslim mystic Sufi poet uh, Ibn al-Arabi, uh, a book called uh, Stations of Desire, translated by Michael Sells. Uh, and Michael is one of the, he, he is also one of the leading translators uh, from Arabic into English. So there was Taha, this total unknown between these two giants, uh, you know, with this very remarkable poetry. And he's the only one alive, too. Yeah, he's the only okay. one alive, right? The Living Writer right. Show yes. likes to point that out. He's very much and alive, now, very yeah. much alive. He's a tremendously charismatic uh, individual. And um, somehow that book, never mind, just began, you know, it was a real sort of uh, testament to the way poetry can work mm. without any marketing without anything in the way of advertising, just word of mouth, it began to spread. And we were, we'd begin to get, first I was wondered, I wondered because nobody responded in the first few months. Did you send a few books out though to a yeah. few people, oh, like no. maybe yeah, the New no. York Times and well, the, or, yeah, the, or, the, or in Jerusalem? The New York Times will never, or I shouldn't say that, because you, you never Who know. Knows, maybe but one day. <laughs> it's very unlikely that they're going to review a book by a totally unknown poet, by a totally unknown, small, tiny press. That's just not going to happen, and it's unrealistic to think it would happen, and then oh. to be disappointed. So but we sent out review copies. We got a few small reviews, but it was more word of mouth, other yeah, poets, readers critics, to readers, readers, people yeah. really sending the book to each other and saying you really should look at this, um, who this poet is. And then, uh, then the next stage was that we actually began to travel a bit with Taha, and Peter and Taha would appear um, at various places around the United States, and that also was quite remarkable because then Taha was it was the first time he'd ever come to the states, um, and he's facing audiences whose background and you know sort of literary orientation couldn't be further from his own and 201 I mean I don't want to curse him because he, you know who knows what will happen in front of another audience somewhere but basically it doesn't seem to matter where the audience comes from or what their level of education is or if they're teenagers or specialists in Arabic literature or um, or, or, or black commercial white, publishers uh, in New York even he has a way of cutting across all of these divisions um, and he is a he's also a wonderful performer and a sort of charismatic he's a storyteller too and he his poetry tends to lead him the poems themselves have a sort of story-like quality but he also likes to uh, embellish around the poems <laughs> with all kinds of stories um it sounds like he's a 
true poet, like what you would believe would be the most, to use this word again, noble, like the most noble calling of a poet to connect to, to, to the humanity well, give, and I'll, everyone. I'll give you an example. Okay. Yesterday, in, uh, we were in New York, Greenwich Village, staying at a friend's house. Taha announced that he would like to buy an electric shaver. Okay, he doesn't walk very well at this point. Got him down to the end of the block. There was a store there, a pharmacy, and uh, in we went. He sized up all the different options. He talked to one of the salespeople who said there was one uh, for $100 and one for $65. He said, read me, Peter, what it says on each box, what each shaver does. Okay. <laughs> then he says to the guy, he said, me, no. He asked if he could have a discount. The salesperson said, well, 10%, ten per, but if you want to, you know, he said more, and he said, well, you have to talk to the manager. So we went up to the front of the shop. We sat on the bench there, and Taha turns to says to me in Arabic, you sit still and don't say anything. <laughs> <laughs> and then, <laughs> then he goes up to the manager and he explains and he says, he just invents this little poem basically. But it turns out, it feels like a poem to me. He says, sir, this shaving, this shaver here costs $100. And it was a contour shaver. He said, it fits my face, but not my pocket. <laughs> and this shaver over here, which costs $65, Fits my pocket, but not my face. <laughs> Perhaps you will you will give me a larger discount, yeah. so that I behold. can. And the next thing you know, boom, twenty percent comes off the, the bargaining price. in the West yeah. Village. And, you know, he does this where he just has a way of turning every. He sees the kind of uh, let's say structural possibilities in all situations, and out comes a kind of poetry. So uh, wow, yeah. Yeah. that's phenomenal, really, yeah. isn't it? Like just really, and it seems like you'd have to be so living in the moment his head couldn't be anywhere else at exactly. that time he's just Absolutely. he's right yeah. there well I refer I re, he's, he's right there and not there at the same time I refer to him as the uh, Thelonious Monk of Palestinian literature uh, <laughs> oh he should have a, played some Thelonious <laughs> Monk that's then. true that's true yeah yeah oh that's what and is this what drew you then Adina to to being his um well, actually, let's take a short break and okay. then let's come back and we'll 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 talk about that. Um, okay. You're listening to the Living Writers Show, um, and we'll be right back. Hi, welcome back. You're listening to the Living Writers Show. Today in the studio, um, I have Peter Cole and Adina Hoffman. And currently right now, we're talking about Taha Muhammad Ali's um, new and selected poems, 1971 to 2005, um, his book, So What?, um, published by Copper Canyon Press in two, 2006. And um, if you're just tuning in, we we're just going to get to the um, uh, the the ex exciting moment of why, how did Adina, what drew her to becoming um, 
Taha's biographer. Yeah, well, Taha himself, first of all, and Taha's work, um, you know, for all the reasons that we've just been discussing, he's an absolute, he's a wonderful poet, um, first of all. Um, he's also just an absolutely wonderful human being with a fascinating story that I, as someone, I mean, I'm an American Jew. Um, Peter and I both are American Jews who live in Jerusalem and have lived in Jerusalem for most of our adult lives. Um, and there was a way in which encountering Taha um, also helped me or led me to encounter a whole other side of the place where we live. Um, and that is, you know, Palestinian um, life and culture, which is very, I mean, physically, it couldn't be closer. We literally live right across the street from East Jerusalem, which is a Palestinian part of town. But it's universes away from the world in which most um, Jewish Israelis live. And I was fascinated, um, you know, first of all, by Taha as an individual, but I was also interested um, in everything that surrounded him um, culturally. And, and Taha is a fascinating figure in the sense that he fits into the culture in a really complicated way. He he comes from a village, Sephoria, which was destroyed in 1948. It was a, a rural, you know, absolutely what we would think of as a 19th century farming community. No electricity, um, no running water, um, a very rich um, oral culture of, you know, stories told out loud and um, pre-Islamic legends um, sort of recited in a, a guest room, um, as it's called, where the men would sort of sit and talk and read stories. And um, that's the world that Taha comes from. It was erased, more or less, in 1948, um, but he holds it inside him. He carries it with him. And much of his poetry is sort of devoted to... Um, I don't want to say preservation because that sounds like a kind of pickling or something, um, but a kind of living. I mean, if you want to talk about living writers, this is a living writer and his village is still alive um, inside him. And so I was fascinated by that. How um, does he do that? Is it be, is it coming through the poems or is it in his being when you're just um, talking? It's, well, yeah. I think it's rather than preservation, it's more a celebration. Yeah, it's I a mean. celebration without any kind of sentimentality. I mean, there's a great deal of, of um, harshness that's depicted and, and um, complicated. It's a real place. Taha always talks about there's a particular character. His his poems are filled with various almost sort of characters out of a novel or something. And one of them he always describes as being like a coin, like life itself. It has on one side, it has beautiful things like flowers and love and, and poetry. And on the other side, it has illness and war and um, the pills he has to take every morning. Um, but that this is life and you take the good with the bad. And it sounds much hokier when I say it than when he says it. But there's a way in which I think in his recreation of the village um, or um, he's he's managed to bring it alive as a real place in that sense. Um, in fact, I think Peter, I'm going to ask Peter to read a poem, uh, one of Taha's poems, which is about the village. And, and it actually is a poem that I'm happy to say that I this biography that I'm writing sort of inspired in a way. I as in the course of writing the book, I did a lot of research um, about the village, and um, of course, and I mean, there's also a great deal in the book about Palestinian poetry. But this particular part of the book was about the village, and I asked Taha if he would go back with me if we could take a drive and go to the remains of the village. The village is gone. It now an Israeli farming community, a moshav, exists um, right over the place where the houses were. And Taha sort of groaned. 
and said, oh, you know, please don't make me go. I will have a headache for <laughs> for four days if you make me go. Um, you know, can't my brother take you? And in fact, the brother did take me. And because we of a, the pain? The is pain. That, it's of a, the memory. His yeah. entire childhood um, is lying in the kind of the rubble underneath And there this. are pieces of stones, right? Because in there the introduction to so yeah. what, it seems that... You have to know that it was there, though. Many oh, Israelis, I think, would pass it by and not have any sense of what... They would just think it was a very nice-looking landscape. You know, right. what a beautiful landscape. So Untouched. Uh, right. Oh, oh, how pristine. Because it was decimated. Right. Or they might look yeah. at those rocks and say, oh, look at the Roman stones. And, oh, right. Um, and not realize that actually much more recently there were people who lived in this place. But So I went with the brother and we had a wonderful time and it was very good that I went. But And I was a little bit, it was too bad for me that Taha didn't go with me because I thought his own reflections would be interesting. But in the end, instead, he, he wrote a poem. Um to explain, I think, why he didn't want to go. Um, so, Peter, do you want to... Yeah, because, well, just one other thing about it, that um, Taha's whole point about this, let's say, celebration of village life, or with all its pain, too, the pain of the loss of, of that life, um, is that uh, with regard to, you know, should Palestinians be trying to get their land back? And Taha's adamant, no, that, that's, that life is gone. That's gone. That's it. It's gone. It can't be brought back because the, the, what's important there is not the land. It's the people, the people who are on the land and the kind of life that they had. And so it's the spirit of that life that he's trying to bring forward in his poetry. It's not about real estate. It is about political rights yeah. also beneath all that. That's another issue. And certainly uh, it's something that's, that's important to him. But this is not just about, you know, uh, a simple thing of getting back the land and, and reconstructing the village. No, he's not in favor of that at all. So this is, this is a poem called The Place Itself, or I Hope You Can't Digest It. And um, just two things that might help you to know. There are two characters uh, who appear in the poem who show up in a lot of other uh, poems by Taha. One is Amira, uh, a beloved from early in life. With the braid. With the Usually braid. with the braid. Yes. And they're in fact, in <laughs> fact it will show up here. And uh, a boy named Kasim, who's in fact the one that Adina mentioned, who uh, was like a coin with two sides. The place itself, or I hope you can't digest it. And so I come to the place itself, but the place is not, <clears throat> it's a little too early. <laughs> for a poetry reading. <clears throat> and so I come to the place itself, but the place is not its dust and stones and open space. For where are the red-tailed birds and the almonds green? Where are the bleeding lambs and pomegranates of evening, the smell of bread and the grouse? Where are the windows and where is the ease of Amira's braid? Where are the quails and white-footed fettered horses whinnying, their right leg alone set free? Where are the wedding parties of swallows, the rites and feasts of the olives, the joy of the branching spikes of wheat? And where is the crocus? eyelash? Where are the fields we played our games of hide-and-seek in? And where is Qasim? Where are the hyssop and thyme? Where is the kite descending on chicks from the heaven's heights? As the old woman shouts at it, you took our speckled hen, you whore. I hope you can't digest it. You there in the distance, I hope you can't digest it. Thank you. Thank you for reading that one. And so that was inspired by um, 
by him not going with you then, yeah. Adina, for that. Because um, that's actually it's so interesting that that's the first poem that you both chose to read, because that was the poem that I actually started circling things in. I can't find the page. Um, shoot, Peter, can you? 157. Um, 157. Okay. Um, because I was noticing that he calls upon these these certain images as, as um, touchstones mm-hmm. through, throughout. And so, yeah, so this was... A, um, the poem, because even like the dust and stones, the red-tailed birds, birds are everywhere in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, green, and and then I thought, oh, the almonds green. I see why green, because it was like something like you, you embrace me with your green arms, like some line where I just thought, oh, that was so amazing, like your green arms. But now I see like maybe it's because of the the almond or the olives or. Mm-hmm. And the braid and the spikes of wheat yeah, everywhere, right. everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And um, well, it's also interesting because I mean, a lot of the these kinds of images, uh, in some ways, this relates to some of the uh, medieval work I do, also, which we'll talk about later. A lot of Palestinian poetry has in common these kinds of images. You'll see them in many places, and so, on the one hand, you could say by let's say American modernist standards. Well, those are con- that's just conventional, that's cliched, whatever. Um, but the whole point about a poetry like this, which is very much um, grounded in its long its own tradition, like the medieval Hebrew poetry, which is very much like medieval Arabic poetry, is is not so much coming up with completely original images that no one's ever heard before, but animating mm-hmm. what's what what's given. It was these are images that are familiar to people because this is what's on this is what they grew up with, and the whole um, the mark of the poet or the worth of the poet is determined by what he does with those images, not whether they're brand new. Um, so you do find these kind of things, and I'm always shocked when I or when I see them in work by other Palestinian poets, not animated. Mm-hmm. You know, and then they just not all obviously, but in many cases, obviously, uh, there aren't that many good poets in any tradition. Um, Taha has a way of taking these simple things that are everywhere, like the buying the razor, and just bringing life into it. Yeah, I see. And so, so the other, so the other people are calling upon these images or these symbols, but they're rather flat. And yeah. well, there's an array. I think. I mean, one thing that's that I've always loved about Taha, and I think it's what made me want. Another thing that made me yes. want to write about him was that there's a way in which he both um, contains within him this huge intellectual tradition, and he has massive quantities of classical Arabic verse that he's memorized and, and self-taught. And, and he's completely awesome. self-taught. Yeah, I actually skipped over his biography. He had four years of schooling and basically taught himself everything he knows, and he knows a great deal about Arabic literature and grammar um, and American literature and world literature. He's a, a great fan of, as he calls him, John Steinbeck. Um, he's read most of Steinbeck's novels, and oh, and and it actually does infuse his own work um but what's interesting is and and most importantly taha besides being a poet is also um the owner um of the most successful i think we can safely say souvenir shop in nazareth um right next to the church of the annunciation if you go there i'm sure he would be happy if you would come pay his shop a call the (laughs) prominent souvenir center of nazareth as it says on the sign really Um, and when you walk in actually you the first thing you see aside from 
all sorts of um, crucifixes and menorahs and kafias and um, creches and whatnot is a large sign that says a thing of beauty is a joy forever, John Keats. Um, <laughs> so you could be in an Irish pub too. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. He's got a couple of other wonderful signs that he's evolved from Continental Airlines slogans and things like that. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> but what's wonderful, what I started to say is part of what's wonderful about Taha is that he has this intellectual tradition deep in his bones and his blood. But he's also a very grounded person. He is a peasant. He, he speaks of himself proudly as a peasant, a son of a peasant. And so for him, these images, while they echo certain sort of um, tropes that are, you know, ancient in Arabic, they're also about his backyard. I mean, he has olive trees and he's very much those those birds are birds that he sees every day and, and tries to feed and I mean, he, it's both. It's, it's not, you can't say he's just a peasant and he's not just a sort of airborne intellectual, but I love the way that these things come together in Ta and in his work. Yeah, I mean, what they aren't, which is, what they are in a lot of lesser poetry is just symbols. Right. Mm-hmm. Here, these are not just symbols. Obviously, they, they, they uh, ramify like symbols do when they're used correctly, but these are not symbols of something. These are the thing, the things themselves, the place itself. That's, you know, it, he, it's very, very much. You can feel that he's holding, holding on has a hold on them in a way right. when you read when right. it's in the poem. Right. And they also do, I think, and this is part of, um, we discussed the success of his book and his readings, um, I think there's a way in which they are deeply Palestinian. They they come out of the Palestinian landscape and the Palestinian tradition and the Arabic tradition, but they also move beyond it. They speak to people who've never seen an olive tree before um, because he has, I think, managed to, to, to get inside that olive tree and somehow animate it as a, a, a it's not just um, a symbol of the lost land or often, again, in lesser um, work um, that comes from Palestine, it will simply be that the olive tree symbolizes this and it's a sort of fill-in-the-blank um, thing. We also shouldn't. I think it's important for us to say Taha is not the only wonderful Palestinian poet. There are many. Um, and in fact, our press publishes several. Um, and and they're very different. Like I don't know them? if there are many. There, there are, are several. There's several. I mean, someone like Samih al-Kasim is a wonderful poet um, who whose work, I think, is, is quite important. I think it's important just not to say, I mean, Taha is, is right. part of a whole matrix here. Um, so and Darwish, and Darwi- Mahmoud Darwish yes. is the most famous Palestinian poet. Um, you use you use yeah. Darwish in the beginning of your book, Peter, right? Yeah. I'm sorry, because I yeah. I thought that was lovely too. I didn't. Yeah. Well, what was I going to say? I was just going to say that, that he's part of a context. He's very different from them, and they each have their... I mean, Darwish is a much more sort of classically musical poet in the sense that, first of all, he he continues to write in meters, um, which Taha doesn't. Taha writes in a completely free, sort of what we in the States would consider free verse. Um, the Arabic terms are much more complicated because what they consider free verse is actually metered um, so that someone like Darwish is drawing from that tradition Um do you want to read another poem? Uh, oh, let's take a let's take a short break, mm-hmm. and then okay. we'll be right back. You're listening to the Living Writers Show today in the studio. Peter Cole and Adina Hoffman. We're talking about Taha Muhammad Ali's book. So what? We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us uh, today on Living Writers Show in the studio, Peter Cole and Adina Hoffman, um, translator and biographer, respect. Um, respectively, um, of Taha Muhammad Ali um, and press publishers, uh, let's see, and uh, poets and, and uh, prose writers. So um, lots of great stuff here um, this today. Um, so let's hear some more poems, shall we? Mm-hmm. I thought I'd read a poem called Abdul Hadi Fights a Superpower. Um, and this is a poem <clears throat> that combines um, both that peasant ethos we were just talking about Uh, with, I want to say, a more directly political statement, but in fact, none of Taha's political statements are direct in the conventional sense. He actually, one of the reasons I think he's such an effective political poet uh, is because he employs the principle of indirection, uh, and he makes poems work emotionally first, so that you're you're struck by the emotional power of the verse and identify with the people in the verse, and then... After having had that emotional experience, you're much more open to the uh, perhaps challenging uh, political line of thought. That, that um, it seems yeah. even to connect to the poem that you you just read earlier, where the the woman is the old woman is is screaming at the the bird right. that's taken the hen, right? right? Something is lost and taken away, right? But you're in the moment, right? And it's just um, an old woman. It could be any culture, and it could be a lot of places, right. yeah, yes. yeah. And so that's what happens in this poem. Abdul Hadi is also one of these rec- uh, characters who recur in a lot of Taha's work. Um, Taha refers to him as uh, an Arab everyman. He could be just a simple person. Uh, he's illiterate, as you'll see. Uh, and at the end of the poem, Taha uh, uh, mentions labne, which is a cheese made from yogurt. Abdul Hadi fights a superpower. And I think this was actually one of the mm-hmm. first poems that Taha <coughs> published. 19, the date on it is 1973. 1973, yeah. wow. But, okay. it, you know, it's, uh, we, we read it just before the American invasion of uh, Afghanistan at a big political festival. And it seemed poetry to be festival. a poetry festival. And it seemed to be about you know, the impending invasion. It seems to be about, and that's also the mark of good political poetry, is that it it renews itself. It applies to situations as they evolve. In his life, he neither wrote nor read. In his life, he didn't cut down a single tree, didn't slit the throat of a single calf. In his life, he did not speak of the New York Times behind its back didn't raise his voice to a soul, except in his saying, come in, please, by God, you can't refuse. Nevertheless, his case is hopeless, his situation desperate, his God-given rights are a grain of salt tossed into the sea. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, about his enemies my client knows not a thing. And I can assure you, were he to encounter the entire crew of the aircraft carrier Enterprise, he'd serve them eggs, sunny side up, and labna, fresh from the bag. Thank you. Thank you. I love that poem. Yeah, no, that's a poem. I've heard that poem hundreds of times by now. And how do you hear it, Adina? Actually, like, how do you how how will you um, present it? Like in the reading, will will you both read and then Taha will read Taha. in Arabic? No, or will Taha, Taha, Taha reads in Arabic first, and it's also been interesting. A, we want American audiences 
to hear Arabic that's about something else than <laughs> what they're used to hearing. Arabic is always about uh, from the news. Uh, yes. And just to see he's a very animated reader. He's a marvelous performer. So we want him, we want people to, to remember that this is an Arabic poem in an Arab body uh, and by someone who clearly uh, is just adores Arabic and has wonderful command of it. Um, and all that is conveyed even though people, for the most part, can't understand it. Uh, and then I read the English. And then Taha and I talk back and forth a little bit, and we improvise. Taha always says, you know, you should look at the audience like uh, uh, as customers come into the shop, and then you decide what, what you want to sell. Uh, you, don't, you, don't, you don't decide in advance. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's the mark of a true uh, showman, uh, too, right, isn't right, it? Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, will you will you read another poem for us, Peter? Sure. Do what would be um, maybe something uh, from Twigs? Twigs. Yeah. Twigs is a, a different kind of poem. It's a um, a series of short poems. I'll just read a, a couple of them, and um, they they've become some of these have become in some ways uh, mottos. Uh, for Taha in a certain sense. And, and was Twigs also, was this also in the book Nevermind that both of you printed yes, with I Ibis say editions? That, yeah, Nevermind um, was the, with a book that, that we first came up with. It was 20 poems in a story. Marvelous story, by the way. Is that story, uh, so what? It's, it's, it's yes, that's story, the story, yeah. so what? And then Copper Canyon approached us a little while uh, after we published Nevermind and asked if they could uh, reprint Nevermind in the States. But we already had a distributor in the States. And so we balked at that, but after a while we realized that it was it, that was counterproductive. We had done all we could for Taha with our very limited means. Uh, and, and Copper Canyon is a Copper wonderful Ken's press. A wonderful so. press, yeah. And so they agreed to do a bilingual expanded edition. So we added a lot of material. Fifteen poems. Something like something that, like yeah. That. Okay. And some of them, some long poems also. So this is a, the So What is a much, much fuller representation of what Taha does. Mm-hmm. And Copper Canyon was also just a, an absolutely wonderful press to work with. People who truly believe in poetry and just you know, work with tremendous dedication and they adored Taha. Yeah, and also I would, it's also important to say that the Arabic, the presence of the Arabic in the Copper Canyon book is, is a really important thing for Taha also in the sense that his his books in, are published in Israel in Arabic. And as such, they have a very small sort of radius of distribution. They don't much get beyond Nazareth. Um, Because of the politics of the Middle East, it tends to be the case that a poet like Taha is not distributed in the wider Arab world. Well, they simply can't get into the Arab world at large. So that there's a way in which his poems haven't really been available in Arabic um, to Arabic speakers. So part of the idea was also that this Copper Canyon book would make that Arabic um, present in the wider world, um, which I think it has, and we've gotten wonderful responses from from Arabic readers who and you know, yeah, Arabic based on that readers. now also uh, his work is being translated into German, and French, French, and other languages. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's one. That yeah. is that's so you and it, so it's also the generosity of then um, sharing him then with Copper Canyon Press because there was a way you could have said no, we're going to be his, well, yeah, you know, his spokes at, or his you know conduit to the world and and, abs- so and that the was risk, generous at the you. risk of sounding hokey. There is something about Taha and his own generosity of spirit that I think kind of prompts this. There have been a lot of people who've been very generous to Taha and his work and out of, again, in response to his own sort of largeness of heart and whatnot. And so I think that's an extension. Well, there's that, but also part of that ethos uh, of cross-fertilization that we're trying to get at in the press is that um, people, we don't own these literary things. Mm -hmm. These are things that... uh, 
move and evolve from culture to culture, and embracing that kind of mobility is really, I think, central to both the poetries or the literatures we're interested in and, and uh, to our own work. So it's important to to enjoy and also let go, uh, mm-hmm. and let things move on, and you know, we move along with them. It's not like we've lost the yeah. lost yes. contact. So yes. anyway, the two poems I wanted to read from Twigs. Uh, which I say serve as mottos. Um, the first one is a kind of Ars Poetica, and the second one is actually a, uh, I'll just pause in between, and the second one was actually read at a um, national assembly after the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of Israel, uh, m- uh, marking the first year, the anniversary of the assassination. And the uh, MC of the evening, uh, which, uh, which was broadcast, live on national TV, stopped the proceedings at a certain point and said he wanted to read a poem. And this is the poem he, he read, the, the second poem I'll read here. So the first one, it goes like this. And so it has taken me all of 60 years to understand that water is the finest drink and bread the most delicious food and that art is worthless unless it plants a measure of splendor in people's hearts. After we die, and the weary heart has lowered its final eyelid on all that we've done, and on all that we've longed for, on all we've dreamt of, all we've desired or felt, hate will be the first thing to putrefy within us. Oh, thank you. Is that, we, Peter, I'm sorry, I'm slightly confused. Was there, were you going to read two pieces? Or did you, oh, those, it were, was those the were the two, two pieces. Yeah, oh, okay. sorry about that. Oh, no, no, yeah. that's that's wonderful. Okay, yeah. I see. So um, the, the second one about the hate and after we die, that, that was the that was was read. Part that was yeah. read. At the, oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that really, uh, um, it's, it's also wonderful to hear how these poems not only are something that you, um, as a reader, can be with in your own experience, but we're called upon then at this um, to mark the assassination, the assembly of people. Yeah. So it's they're they're placed in the world as well. They, these poems have it's really been uplifting. Uh, again, as Dina said, maybe in a slightly hokey way, but but really does put wind in one's sails. Things to, don't have to be hokey if they're <laughs> good. Right, exactly. Right? <laughs> well, also D. H. Lawrence said something about you know that one has to go up against the edge of sentimentality if you want to have an emotional charge in something. If you go over the line, of course, it's terrible, but one has to take that risk. Um, and it really has been tremendously uplifting to see how uh, real poetry on its own can speak to people still in a very powerful way. Um, we've been, the UN invited us to, to read ones we, we couldn't go, but the poetry has this way of just getting to, you know, cutting across divisions of high and low, east and west, Arabs and Jews. It really does seem to work that way, and that, that's wonderful. Oh, it is. It really is wonderful. Do you have another poem, Peter, there? Because you're, you're flipping through mm-hmm. the book. Would you like to read? I'm waiting for Adina to tell me what to do, as usual. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no. let's see. Um, what's the right one? I mean, it's a bit long, which Okay, yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah, this is a poem that actually was written too late to be in the book, um, but it's a poem that I think, in some ways, of all Taha's poems, has gotten more of a 
a sort of powerful reaction from audiences. I probably shouldn't say too much about it. Um, it's a slightly longer poem. Well, you can... It's not so long. No, but it's... It, it, um, it's also, uh, it's one of his most recent poems. Yeah, we started with a very early one, so we can also oh, add this, this to it. Yeah. That sounds great. Revenge. At times I wish I could meet in a duel the man who killed my father and raised our home, expelling me into a narrow country. And if he killed me, I'd rest at last. And if I were ready, I would take my revenge. But if it came to light when my rival appeared, that he had a mother waiting for him, or a father who'd put his right hand over the heart's place in his chest, whenever his son was late, even by just a quarter hour for a meeting they'd set, then I would not kill him, even if I could. Likewise, I would not murder him if it were soon made clear that he had a brother or sisters who loved him and constantly longed to see him, or if he had a wife to greet him and children who couldn't bear his absence and whom his gifts would thrill, or if he had friends or companions, neighbors he knew or allies from prison or a hospital room, or classmates from his school asking about him and sending him regards. But if he turned out to be on his own, cut off like a branch from a tree, without a mother or father, with neither a brother nor sister, wifeless without a child, and without kin or neighbors or friends, colleagues or companions, then I'd add not a thing to his pain within that aloneness, not the torment of death, and not the sorrow of passing away. Instead, I'd be content to ignore him when I passed him by on the street as I convinced myself that paying him no attention in itself was a kind of revenge. Oh, thank you, Peter, for, for reading the, the poem. It was titled Revenge, was it? Revenge, it was Revenge yeah. by Taha Muhammad Ali. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. My whole life at sea, and I'm pushing age 73. Now there's only one place that was meant for me. Your heart's gonna give right out on you 
Good afternoon. You're listening to The Living Writers Show. Um, today in the studio, Peter Cole and Adina Hoffman. Um, now for the last part of our time together here, um, we're, we're going to turn to Peter's book that just was uh, just came out um, from uh, Princeton Press this year, The Dream of the Poem, Hebrew Poetry from Muslim and Christian Spain, 950 to 1492. Um, Peter, uh, again, was he translated it, he edited it, and he introduces it as well. So, um, and so, Peter, this book, at the in your introduction, you say, um, this book was born of a fascination that evolved into addiction. And it seems like uh, you said that it's a span of two decades that you've been obsessed here. <laughs> right. You could, you could think of me as a, a recovering addict. Um, okay. Well, now you can see. The proof is um, <laughs> right. right here. We can hold right. it in the, the, proof the book. Is, the proof is a deadly weapon uh, between covers. Um <laughs> Which is to say that the book is large. Yes, many um, poems, many right. poems. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's something I never uh, started out. I never thought I would be, and I would end up translating medieval Hebrew poetry. Um, I was curious about it when I first went to Jerusalem in 1981, um, basically to study Hebrew. I was interested in in the Hebrew literary tradition. I thought it would be interesting for me, or important for me as an American Jewish poet, to know that tradition, just just to know what my options were. Um, and began very quickly, actually. Uh, I learned Hebrew very quickly and began read, trying to read these medieval poems, even though my Hebrew really wasn't up to it. And I would get confused about all sorts of very important things. Um, but, it, <laughs> but still, there, it exerted some kind of power over me, uh, maybe mostly unconscious. I also uh, encountered some of these poems uh, in synagogue occasionally. And it wasn't until... 1989 that I actually started to translate 
Uh, and that was also by chance. I was sitting in a cafe in San Francisco one Sunday morning watching a football game on the East Coast. And suddenly... <laughs> that sounds like it's just ripe for poetry. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, um, yeah. Well, you know, the Middle Ages isn't all just the smell of the lamp and, and the scholarship. Um, you need something to, to loosen things up every once in a while. And anyway, a, a poem that I had heard in 1981 that a friend had recited to me in his kitchen just um, sort of percolated up. And I started to translate on a napkin um, and understood that I now whatever had the skills both in English and in Hebrew uh, to at least try this and I just ran home and began translating and not that it's that easy it's, it's very very difficult it and seems extremely like a, time consuming an epiphanic yeah. moment it was certainly yes. an epiphanic moment and uh, obviously just things had been marinating for a long time uh, and that's the way that that's how that addiction came about I began first just really tra translating without a great deal of learning behind it but very soon understood that that was impossible. Uh, you can't go back a thousand years to a world that's, a, that's very much an Eastern world grounded in Arabic literary tradition and in the history of the Hebraic uh, literary and religious tradition without immersing yourself in all that. So I very gradually, gradually uh, sort of lowered myself uh, into that world and um, tried at several points to get out <laughs> and found that I couldn't. I was, I was too attached. I was too interested. And so I just kept going. And here we are. <laughs> well, will you read us um, some, some of your translations then, too? Sure. And, and all of these poems, like what, what we have here in this book, this very big page, fi over 500-page book, um, are, is all... Um, is English, yes. Right. But if you go to the Princeton website, it the the, the original the the, language is also right. The um, book available. page for for this book, you can uh, for uh, for free download the uh, the Hebrew and get it all there. I had originally wanted Princeton to put the Hebrew in the book, but it would just be could you imagine that? Yeah. yeah, you'd need to sell like a little like a wheel. It'd have to have wheels. The book would have to have <laughs> wheels. And in fact, actually, that Hebrew is not so easy to get to. Um, so it's important that it, that it's up there. Mm -hmm. uh, um, the other thing I should say though is that. As I, I think I mentioned earlier that this poetry very much evolves out of a fusion of Hebrew and Arabic literary sensibilities. And many people talk about this work, even though it's written in Hebrew, as a branch of Arabic literature. Because it's important to remember that the Jews who wrote these poems spoke Arabic. That was their mother tongue. They lived in the Arab world. They were Arab Jews. They were totally immersed in that world. Uh, the only things they did in Hebrew were religious study and uh, the composition of poetry. Uh, those were on the same level. Those were kind of privileged uh, forms of expression. Uh, and so all sorts of um, Arabic images and literary tropes and uh, emotional um, registers are suddenly imported into Hebrew and paradoxically that the influx of these foreign sources results not in a kind of assimilation or neutralization of the Hebraic uh, and Jewish element, but in a kind of cultural renaissance, uh, in a flowering. So it was turning outward, ends up producing a kind of inward um, blossoming. Um, and the, the, the title itself, The Dream of the Poem, reflects that bridging that from outward, uh, within and without, the Arab and the Jew, 
uh, maybe I'll just s- let's, start can we with hear that. some yeah. Yeah, let's because yeah. um, we actually we we don't have too much longer oh. Peter oh. so I don't oh, mean to, to okay. yeah I'd love to hear sure. some of your translations okay. uh, although it's so interesting what you're saying I hate to cut that short uh, so I'll just jump straight ahead to one of the um, the first major poet of the period his name is uh, Shmuel Hanagid uh, he is also the prime minister at the time of the Muslim state of Granada and the commander of its Muslim army and also I think the greatest uh, Hebrew poet since biblical times the gazelle I'd give everything I own for that gazelle who rising at night to his harp and flute saw a cup in my hand and said drink your grape blood against my lips and the moon was cut like a D on a dark robe written in gold. And one of the things, the obvious things of interest there, apart from the sort of deep sensuality of it, is of course this is addressed to another man. And so you have this extremely learned, uh, religiously learned rabbi. Jew, who in so many <laughs> ways you could say is a rabbi, writing this homoerotic poetry. And this was fairly normal at that time. Yeah. And that was then intentional as well then, because you're saying it's fairly normal, so that was just it's a, Well, that. it's a subject of great controversy, um, much too uh, complicated to get into now, uh, <laughs> oh. but, but it was, it appears, the evidence seems to say that it was something that was accepted, uh, at least for a certain period of time, particularly as long as um, Arabic literature and sort of Arabic aesthetics held sway uh, in the Jewish world, and just in Spain, however. Okay. And and so you have another poem, Peter. A poem by um, Hanagid's protege, uh, you might say, um, someone who was very, very different, much more of an introvert and also a misanthrope uh, (laughs) and more of a metaphysically inclined poet. His name is um, Solomon Ibn Gabirol. And the poem I'll read is called The Altar of Song. And a lot of these poems have headings on them in Judeo-Arabic. In Arabic, that's written in Hebrew characters. And that tell us, give us a, a hint what the, what the circumstances of the poem's composition were. And this one tells us that this is a poem about someone who uh, plagiarized, who stole some of this poet's uh, verses and claimed them for himself. <laughs> in other words, he probably thought he could get away with it because they weren't talking about book publication. And it seems that Ibn Gabirol must have written to him or said something, and uh, they had some exchange. The guy tried to defend himself, and then Ibn Gabirol writes back with this poem. Um, It's really a poem about the uh, deep ethos of poetry. What is poetry about? It's not just about verse-making. It's about something much deeper. Your The altar of song. Your answer betrays your transgression. Your words are empty. Your verse is weak. You've stolen a few of my rhymes but your spirit failed. You're meek. Try taking on wisdom's discipline instead of poetry's altar and pose. For as soon as you start your ascent, your most private parts are exposed. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Peter Cole. Um, And thank you for for reading um, some from the dream of the poem, Hebrew poetry from Muslim and Christian Spain, 950 to 1492. Um, Thank you, Peter Cole. Thank you, Adina Hoffman, for being here on the Living Writers Show, Um, biographer um, and friend of uh, (laughs) both, right? You you guys, uh, of Taha Muhammad Ali, um, his book, So What, uh, that we've been talking about today. Today, um, 
Thank you so much for being on the show. We've Our run pleasure. out of time. Thanks so for having so, us. And, and thank you for listening, Ann Arbor, for, for streaming in uh, Seattle, Florida, and elsewhere. Um, thank you to Jesse Johnston, our, our steadfast uh, engineer of brilliance. Um, and the, uh, my name is T. Hetzel. Until next time. Sports Report. You can do it all night long! On 88.3 WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Hello, this is the Wednesday Daily Sports Report. I'm Kevin Ruggis, joined in studio by Lincoln Bohm. Rod Salman, Rob Salman doing the engineering for us. Rob, you got some Michigan stuff for us today? Oh, yeah, let's go right into it. Awesome. Uh, I guess we'll start with the basketball game tonight. Michigan versus BC 715 ESPN UTV, which nobody gets. We'll have the game uh, on the radio tape delay, and then we'll play it back on the sports stream later tonight. Should be good stuff. Michigan lost two out of the three up in Alaska. It's a nice way to spend your Thanksgiving up in Alaska. And uh, they get BC tonight, who's not quite as good as they are in years past. They are undefeated. Pretty good point guard, Tyrese Rice. One of the better freshman two guards uh, in the country to watch.